Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. And in this episode, a specially requested episode, an episode that I uh, have updated from an old, old lecture series, is Roman Christianity. Ah, Roman Christianity. Now, I have to start with the idea that this is not your Christianity. This is old Christianity. This is before we get Orthodox and Catholics. 1,500 years before we get Protestants. And so if you're to say, well, this doesn't sound like what I believe, you're probably right. Because there's so much evolution that has happened since that it doesn't look the same. The second thing in um, in an introduction is that we're going to use the term Palestine. And the reason why we're going to use Palestine is not that the modern term, it's that this was the region that was the province of the Romans. It was a Greek term for the area that had been ruled by the Persians and was an area of contention between Ptolemaic Egypt and Seleucid Syria. So just like it was an area of competition in our first part of our lecture series between Babylon and Egypt, it becomes a competition between two Greek kings after Alexander, Ptolemy and Seleucus. The Seleucids won, but then they started falling apart. And when they started falling apart, Palestine actually expanded into a much larger kingdom, looking much like the old Solomon kingdom of Judea and Israel. It even had parts of Phoenicia, which are modern-day Lebanon. So it's not Judah, it's not Israel that we're talking about. It's not the old kingdom of David. It's bigger than that. All of this fighting eventually brought in the Romans. And in 60 BC, Pompey, Pompey the Great, Pompey Magnus, Pompey who will eventually fight with Caesar, rolled in with his armies and conquered the kingdom and made it into a Roman ally. And this is kind of the way Romans do things. They they don't conquer it outright. They first put an ally on. on they find a local guy, install him as king. That's going to be Herod. And then say, okay, you run it, and we're going to leave. Now, inevitably, and this happens in Asia, this happens in Asia Minor, this happens, this happens all over the place, is that those allies eventually get into trouble. And so the Romans have to roll back in and take it over. So what starts as a way for the Romans to have a light footprint and not really occupy a place turns into, well, we're going to have to keep it. We're going to have to run it. So Herod does the Roman thing. He builds huge Roman-esque structures. He expands the temple. He uses Roman soldiers to maintain order. He builds aqueducts and baths. He builds Palestine, to, Palestine. he builds Jerusalem 
and other cities to be Roman-esque. What this means is that Judea, the land of Jerusalem, the old kingdom of Jerusalem, is occupied by a polytheistic military, a foreigner from across the sea who do not believe in the Jewish God. Now, the Romans are okay with the Jewish God. They think it's weird because, you know, their people, just like the Babylonians, just like the Egyptians, they're people who have many gods. And so having one God doesn't make a lot of sense to them, especially since the Judeans keep losing. You know, their one God did not help them defeat the Romans, which is what gods are supposed to do. But this God is also very old and the Romans were conservatives and they respected old stuff. So there is not an order of cultural genocide yet in 50 BC, 30 BC. First of all, the Romans are going to uh, are having a civil war. They're way too, way too occupied with their own Pompey versus Caesar, and then Antony versus um, Octavian. Their own convulsions. But there's a respect for this one God. It's old. It must have worked at some point. It works for them. Fine, no problem. That will of course change, especially in the Roman Empire, when you get an emperor. And especially when you get to the, the megalomaniac emperors who view not being worshipped as a god or godlike as disloyalty. That's our Caligula. That's our Nero. But if you ever listen to Jesus Christ Superstar, you know the song from Heaven on Our Minds where Judas sings, Listen, Jesus, do you care for your race? Do you know that we must keep in our place? We are occupied. Have you forgotten how put down we are? I am frightened by the crowd, meaning the, the Jewish crowd that's baying for revolution. We are getting much too loud. And they'll crush us if we go too far. If they go too far. That crowd. Now, that is making reference since we know the history and since and since um, the writers of Jesus Christ Superstar know what's going to happen, and presumably Jesus knows what's going to happen, is that in 70 AD, Jerusalem is going to rise in revolt and be crushed. In fact, we have Josephus, the Jewish Roman uh, governor, writer, sees the revolution coming. He sees the revolt coming. He says, don't do it. As we, I think we talked about in one of our Roman sections, don't do it. To you, the war is play. To the Romans, training is a bloodless battle. And a battle is a bloody training. You are going to lose. Josephus was right. But this is the world we're talking about. Where Christianity is going to, where Jesus is going to be born into, where Christianity is being, is going to grow into. So Jesus, we have to start with Jesus. Now that we've got kind of the world, we got a Roman ally, Herod, in charge. 
using a Roman military mercenaries to um, maintain order. We have to talk about Jesus. Now, the first thing about Jesus is he's not a Christian. And this, when I was like in CCD, blew my mind. But it's true. He's not a Christian. He is a Jewish social reformer. He's not a revolutionary. He's got some famous phrases where he's like, give unto God what is God, give unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. Don't revolt. That's very clearly like you can separate your personal beliefs and your political ones. It's okay. Don't revolt. But he's very clearly talking to other Jews. He's a Jewish person talking to other Jewish people about how to live. So he fits right into the tradition of apocalyptic prophets. And we know them well from our Old Testament. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Elijah, all of these prophets who are like, get your act together. If you don't, there's going to be trouble. And so Jesus is talking about the end of the world coming. And he's talking about it coming soon. Not in his lifetime, but within people who are alive lifetime. So within the next hundred years. And if you want evidence that he's right, because people will go, oh, well, that's stupid. The world keeps going. But that's 70 AD. In 66, there is a revolt. Remember, Jesus is crucified, died, buried, resurrected around 30 to 35 AD. In 66 AD, the Jewish revolt begins. And despite a little bit of success in the beginning, four Roman legions will roll in and eventually obliterate the place. They'll capture the, the, um, the fort on the mountain of Masada, where the Jewish um, revolutionaries will have to kill themselves rather than be captured and crucified. Jerusalem is sacked burned to the ground, the temple is destroyed, the people picked up and spread. The Jewish diaspora begins, a second Jewish diaspora after the Babylonian captivity. This was meant to eliminate Jewish people. This is the genocide, just like the Assyrians did. The idea is you pick them up, you spread them out, they marry local people, they marry local polytheistic people, their kids marry local polytheistic people, and they disappear they're gone because there's no concentration. There's no way of keeping the culture going. So if you want to see an apocalypse, that's 70 AD. It is the complete destruction of Jewish life in Palestine, Judah, Israel. And so what his message is, is the end of the world is coming. So salvation is the purpose of life which is going to blow people's minds because that's not the purpose in Jewish life. That's not nowhere in the Old Testament is there uh, an obsession with salvation of what happens to your soul after you die. No, the, the, the Jewish tradition is very Mesopotamian, as we talked about in our first class, in our first part. It's, it's, it looks like Homer. It's you, you sleep. You go to a dark place. You wait for the end of times to come and the final judgment.
What Jesus is promising is a salvation now. And that your life is leading up to it. And so it's about loyalty to God above the emperor. Now, he's not a revolutionary. He says, you still have obligations to the emperor. But your goal in life is to be a good person. Loyalty to the rules of God. And then you will get a reward. So this turns out to be a poor person's religion. He is not talking to rich people. He, in fact, says it is easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than a rich person to get into heaven. Now, does Jesus hate rich people? No. But he's kind of the in the Carnegie mold, where, where I believe it's Carnegie who once said, behind every great uh, fortune is an even greater crime. It could be Marx, but I, I, I think I've seen that as Carnegie. But it's, it's a famous phrase that behind air, and that's basically what Jesus is saying. If you're rich, you've probably done something bad. Now you have to remember what the world is. Who's rich? The people who are rich in 30 AD, 25 AD, are Romans who have conquered Jerusalem and are oppressing the Jewish people, or they're people like Matthew, Levi, Levi, who work with, he's a tax collector for the Romans. He works with the Romans. So everybody's poor. Everybody's just getting by. Everybody's just getting by paycheck to paycheck. They are defeated people. Remember, we are occupied. Do you know how put down we are? So it appeals to defeated people or slaves. And it says that you matter. Your life matters. How you, how you treat yourself and how you treat others matters. It also says this life sucks. Yes, it does. But heaven is the prize. And heaven is going to be glorious. Now, it doesn't quite say exactly what heaven is. And that's going to be complicated when we get later on. But heaven's going to be a good place. Four, Jesus uses magic. Now, we think of magic as one type of magic called illusion. You know, David Copperfield makes the Statue of Liberty disappear. Woo! That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about controlling nature. We're talking about old school, traditional magic. Magic that all the Old Testament prophets have. John the Baptist has. It's the ability to do things that are unexplainable, what we would call miracles as opposed to magic. But it's the idea that this is something that breaks the laws of physics. It breaks the laws of Greek logic. Now, you can't be a prophet without them. No one would take you seriously. That's why people come to him to, to, to heal them, to cure the sick, to Lazarus, right? Raise the dead, right? Nobody would go to, no one would take a prophet seriously if they're like, well, Good luck with that. Sorry you're blind. Because prophets are jacked into the afterworld. They're, they're jacked into the gods. So of course they should have magic. But magic is simply to do things that control nature. Isaac Asinoff has one of his rules of science fiction is that any sufficiently advanced technology will appear as magic. He's right. You know, take your iPhone 100 years ago. 
And that's science fiction. That's like, what is this thing? It's magic. Imagine going someplace with your iPhone, right? And telling people who have no connection to the outside world what the weather is going to be like for the next three or four days. You're a shaman. You're, you're, they're, they're not going to kill you. They're going to raise you up to be. You could predict the future. That's amazing. And you're like, well, it's just my cell phone and my satellites and my meteorology. And, but think about all the stuff that goes into that to someone who doesn't understand that all of that stuff is behind it. It's magic. It's modern medicine. It's IVF, right? How does IVF work? You say, whoa, you take the egg and sperm and you put them together. and But it's magic because if they knew what they were doing, if they knew it worked every time, if it was science, they'd put one egg in there. They'd put one fertilized egg in there. It would work. You'd have a baby. But they don't. They put multiples in there because most of them fail. Why? Well, uh, they don't know why this one attached, but that one didn't. Why that one grew into a baby, that one didn't. And you're willing to pay five, eight, ten grand. This huge amount of money. The insurance does not always cover. Because insurance says, we don't know. You know, it's magic. It's magic. And so think about Jesus' miracles. It's healing the sick. It's helping people. It's the first one is the water into wine. What kind of wine? It's awesome wine. But the purpose of magic is that Greek logic doesn't have all the answers. That's the purpose of magic. That there is a world beyond Greek logic, which is philosophy, which is the most important um, way of explaining how the world works at the time. That there's more to life than just what humans can figure out. And number five, it's evangelical. You have to go and do things. You have to go and show people. You have to go and talk to people. You have to spread the gospel, which is the good news, to others. And Jesus had, I've seen some estimates, around 75 or so followers by the time he's crucified. But the idea is you can't love Jesus and just sit home in a dark room and say, I love Jesus and get to heaven. You have to go and do something. You have to go and live a Christian life. You have to go live a life like Jesus. So it's not yet Christian. You got to go live a Jesus life. The message is to listen to the spirit, not to the letter of the law. This is where he goes back to being a Jewish social reformer, which is why the biggest fights he has is not with the Romans. Romans don't care. You want to follow more rules? You want to follow more rules of Moses? You go right ahead. His biggest fight is with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The groups of priests that took very seriously the letter of the law. And so there's the fight over like healing the sick on the Sabbath. And the fight is supposed to be, how is doing something good bad? Because it's on a certain day. That doesn't make any sense. You're missing the spirit for the letter of the law. And so you have to go out. So all Christianity is supposed to be evangelical. So when we today say, oh, I'm an evangelical Christian or I belong to an evangelical branch, it's you're all supposed to be because you're, you're supposed to be the living embodiment of Jesus in your life by your own behavior, by your own words, by your own deeds. You're supposed to spread the gospel to others. 
at the very least, you're supposed to spread the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have done unto you. So generation one of Christianity is essentially Jews for Jesus. All the 12 apostles are Jews. All of his um, disciples are Jews. It's a Jewish sect. And it's one of many that are out there. There are other preachers. Jesus is not the only one. I mean, see John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not a follower of Jesus. He's a cousin of Jesus. He likes Jesus, but he's got his own thing going on. Notice Jesus does not spend a lot of time bathing people, creating converts. He tells the apostles, come walk with me. Let's go. And they do. So John the Baptist has his own followers, his own sect of people who think he's a prophet. And what they do, what this generation one of Christianity does is argue the prophetic tradition of a pure religious life. They're talking to fellow Jews throughout the diaspora because Jews are not, not only in Palestine, they are in Greece, they are in Asia Minor. Um, they have spread throughout the Roman Empire, and so they go to these different communities. And the argument is, stop being Roman. Stop assimilating. Follow the teachings of Jesus. So it's evangelical, but it's mostly tied to Jewish diaspora. It's not Roman nor Greek. So it's not going to be successful. The Romans or the Greeks are not going to read or read Hebrew, which the Jewish books are written in. They don't care. So you're going to get, you're only going to get a few converts. It is tied to Jewish traditions, especially diet. Can't eat meat, can't eat pork, excuse me. And circumcision. You have to, men have to circumcise. You have to cut the bippy off the bippy. So you're going to get few converts. Jesus is dead, quote unquote. So you lack a charismatic leader. So you get few converts, converts. Because you don't have a God. I mean, Peter's nice, but is he Jesus? No. And what about the other guys? Thomas, John, and James, and Matthew, and... Yeah, they're fine. You know, but without Jesus, and, and we see this, right? We see this very early on in the Acts of Apostles, is, is that after Jesus' death, the, even the, the 12 don't know what to do, and they kind of start to break apart. And then they go, and then literally they go their own way. They, they never see each other again. You know, Thomas goes off to Iran and then to, to India. So many of them never see each other again and only hear the stories that they've been martyred. And then there's the oral tradition. Jesus didn't la write anything down. And so it lacks the Hebrew texts. It lacks the standardization. It lacks the, the built-in philosophy. So it changes. And you see this. You see this in the Gospels. How Jesus changes. Because Mark, Matthew, and Luke might be called the synoptic Gospels where they say, oh, they're similar. But they're not. They're different Jesuses. Why are they different Jesuses? Why does Jesus do different things in them? They don't all have his childhood. 
Why? It's because it's an oral tradition of these followers telling the stories about Jesus. So it's who are the followers? Who are they telling this to? And who eventually wrote it down are three different things for those three different different books. And then there's John, which is a completely different book. And it's a completely different Jesus. Completely different. Now, we mush them together. We make a stew out of the Gospels. But they weren't when they were written. When they were written, they were three, they were four, I should say, distinct books. And there are other Gospels about Jesus. We call them the Gnostic Gospels. Or the Apocrypha. You know, different books that aren't in the traditional, that aren't in the um, accepted Orthodox tradition. And that's a problem because Jesus changes depending on who you're talking to. So, the, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. But the Gospel according to John, Jesus is God incarnate. He is glory unto heaven. You know? And so, how can that be the same person? And that's what the oral tradition does. It changes because of it's 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 telephone because of who's telling the story who they're telling it to how they hear it and how eventually it gets written down and then and then we have the problem that it gets edited once it gets written down because it's not standardized until you get metal type we see this throughout the middle ages the gospels are constantly changed where you know there's a word it's like that doesn't really make sense or it doesn't really work for now or and they change it Wills become shalls, or shalls become wills. And so it lacked the Hebrew texts. It lacked Plato. It lacked Aristotle. These written things that you can hand to somebody and say, read this. This is what we believe. It lacks a kind of standardization. And then Paul shows up. Paul. Paul is going to make Christianity, Christianity. So he is a second generation Christian. He never meets Jesus. He's a young man or a boy when the first generation starts to be martyred. I think he's, he holds the horses at St. Stephen's martyrdom, that type of thing. So he's, he's a second generation Christian. He's also, and this is incredibly important, he's a Roman Jew. Unlike the other 12, unlike the other disciples, unlike the first generation, he's jacked into the Roman world. His father was a tent maker during, an, during a war between the Romans and the um, Persians. The emperor came through. He needed tents. He went to this guy. He went to Paul's father, said, Make, I need tents. He said, fine, it's going to cost you X amount. And the Roman emperor says, I don't have X amount. Remember, everything is in cash. There's, no, there's not a lot of credit. So he says, how about I pay you Y, plus I give you and your ancestors Roman citizenship. Well, he, he takes that because Roman citizenship is worth its weight in gold. Roman citizenship is awesome. 
It, it means you're a Roman. It means your kids will be Romans. It means you're jacked into the Roman world. In a way, the occupied, defeated Jews aren't. So, of course, you would take that. Yes, 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 yes. And then you put out a sign, the tent maker for the, for the Roman emperor. And you'd be very proud of that. But that means Paul is tied into a much larger world than the 12 apostles. And he's able to combine Christianity with Roman culture. And the first thing he does with that is separates Judaism from Christianity. He separates how one, what Christians believe from their Jewish past. And this is a big fight. This is a big fight between him and the other apostles, between him and Peter especially. You know, who is the audience for Jesus? They're not getting a lot of converts among the Jews. And it's Paul who says, let's talk to the Romans. Let's talk to Roman citizens. Let's talk to the Greeks. Well, what he to convert anybody, to get anybody, and we'll talk about conversion in a minute, but to get anybody, you got to get rid of the diet. If, if any of you are Italian... You know, you're a pork-loving people. We got pepperoni on our pizza. We got pork uh, sausage and peppers. You know, we got meat sauce in our, in our, with our pasta. That's pork. You know, we serve ham at Christmas. We are a pork-loving people. Well, it makes sense because, remember... Pork is the original domesticated food. And so everybody ate pork. And so if you say, you get a crowd of, of Romans and Greeks together and you say, this is Jesus and he's, he believes in the weak shall, shall inherit the earth and uh, be kind to each other and you'll get into heaven. And people go, great, what do we, great, what do I have to do? Because remember, in polytheism, you have to sacrifice. There is a cost to being protected by these gods. If the first words out of your mouth is, you have to give up pork, half your population leaves right there. Boom, all the women are gone. They're like, I'm not going to go home to my husband and tell him he can't have pepperoni. That ain't happening. So even if you're left with some men who are like, that's okay, I'm a vegetarian. Most people are. We don't have a lot of meat. We eat meat only a couple times a year. I can give it up. No problem. What else do I got to do? Do I have to do anything else? Yes. As a man, you got to take a sharp rock and or a sharp knife and cut the bippy off your bippy. And they said, my bippy? And they said, yeah, um, down below, your bippy. He's like, yeah, what about it? He's like, you see that thingy, that, that, that flappy thingy? You got to, you got to get rid of your turtleneck. Well, you just lost all your men. They look at you and go, God's crazy. You mean Dionysus, I'm allowed to get drunk and burn three goats. But for this God, I got to cut the bippy off my bippy. You're insane. And you've just lost all your guys. You've lost your entire population. And so you can see Paul saying this and going, whoa, 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 whoa. I was just kidding. I was just kidding. That is crazy. You're right. No, you don't. You could eat pork. It's okay. And no. You don't have to cut the bippy off your bippy. You just have to love Jesus and take a bath. And they're like, take a bath? Like, yes, take a bath. 
like John the Baptist, take a bath. And like, we already take baths. We're Romans. It's like, then you're ahead of the game, right? Do I have to sacrifice anything? No, you just have to love Jesus. Keep Jesus in your heart, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, the light. The only way to heaven is through him. And you go, I, I can do that, right? right? Love my brother? I already love my brother. And take a bath? I do that like once a week. Boom, done. Move it on. And so what Paul also introduces is conversion, is the idea that you can start again. He takes the Roman concept of natio, which is anyone, 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 anyone can become a Roman. No matter who you are, you can convert to being a Roman. The Romans are the first people who allowed other people to become them. And if you are cognizant of the immigration fights today, in politics, you understand how hard that is to do for people. Because the idea is, if we let foreigners in, if we let immigrants in, if they we let them become us, we, first of all, me, I'm the Roman, I'm the American, my Americanness, my Romanness becomes worth less. Because there's now more people. I'm not as special. And two, my Romanness or my Americanness changes because you're a foreigner. And you're bringing in your foreign ideas. And whether I like them or not, they're going to assimilate into the culture. They're just going to become part of it. And this fight we're having today over immigration is the same fight we had in the 60s and in the 20s and in the 1890s. And it's the same words we're using. The Romans disliked Gauls becoming Roman in the same way white Americans disliked my Italian ancestors from becoming American and then becoming white. So this is a radical idea. The Jews don't allow conversion, or if they did back in the day, it was very, very, very hard to become Jewish in the ancient world. Still very hard to do today. But Paul makes it easy to become a Christian. So Christianity opens up to non-Jews, which means Christianity has to change. It becomes less, well, Jewish. So it expands, but it also changes. See Paul's letters. There's constantly letters going back to Paul going, uh, how are we supposed to behave? Is this how we're supposed to behave? Are we supposed to behave Roman? Are we supposed to behave Jewish? Are we supposed to do something new? Like, we got questions. And Paul is responding with kind of like a chef. He's like, you take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, because he can't deny Jesus' Jewishness. But at the same time, so you can't become completely Roman, but at the same time, you're leaving the Jewishness of Jesus behind as well and turn, becoming something new. And so the conversion where Paul literally was Saul before, he, he changes. He's one thing and then he becomes another. Saul is a life he leaves behind. It's a dead name. He becomes Paul. And he confesses for the things he did as Saul, but he starts over 
as my evangelical friends would say, he was born again, born again with Jesus. The idea is that you could start over, that what you did before, who you were before, is in the past. It doesn't matter. Who you are now matters. And so Christianity becomes successful if tied to cities as it spreads, it becomes a political problem of loyalty. Whereas polytheists can add the Roman emperor to their list of gods that they say prayers to or they sacrifice to, Christians are like, no, 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 no. There's one, there's one God. It's Jehovah. And then we're going to get complicated and have Jesus be God as well as the Holy Ghost, and then you have the Greek Trinity, but we got to get there. We're never going to really discuss it, but that's in the earliest days. We're not quite there yet. We have, we have to, that's going to be a problem later. So what we get is persecution. Roman emperors start looking at the Christians and going, you're a problem. So if you're going to be a problem, if you're going to cause disruptions, we're going to have to do something to you. We're going to have to make a make a make a a symbol out of you. So they confiscate their property, they arrest them, they torture them, they execute them, they they make sport out of them, throw them into gladiatorial events. This is the famous lions. The idea is that these create the martyrs. Now, in early Christianity, the martyrs are incredibly important to early Christians, because they look at it as, oh my God, look at the bravery of the martyrs. They are sacrificing their lives for Jesus. They are showing these people, and in the crowd are going to be people who go, oh my God, look at the bravery of these martyrs. I want to be a Christian too. It seems that didn't happen. The Christians write that it happened. They believe that it happened. They wanted it to happen. Historically, it doesn't seem that the martyrdom had much of an effect galvanizing people. You don't see huge upticks in Christianity in places that have huge persecutions. Um, so there's, there might be a few. We, we don't want to say this. In history, we never say never. There's, so there's probably a few converts. But what it really does is it ste- puts steel in the spine of the belief system. Peter is executed. Paul is executed by Nero. People are thrown to the lions. And what it does is says, if Peter could do it, I can do it. If Paul could do it, I can do it. If the martyrs can be set threat to the lions, then what they believed mattered. They wouldn't want to get rid of us if it didn't matter. And so it made more than converting new people, it made the people who believed stronger in their beliefs. But there's a problem. And that problem is the belief systems can't compete with Greek philosophy. It it can't. Christianity cannot explain how the world works better than Greek philosophy. And so you're always getting into fights with Greeks, with, with Romans, with Greeks, with educated people who are like, this thing sounds stupid. 
Like Aristotle and Plato give us a give us an existence. What do you got? Well, we have heaven. Where? How? What is it like? Well, we don't actually know. Jesus just said it was cool. Okay. Good for you. Like in early Christianity, there's not a world view. Remember, Jesus doesn't need one. He's Jewish. He's got the Jewish worldview. He's got the prophet worldview. But Christianity, if it's going to convert new peoples, needs a worldview. It needs a way of explaining how the world works. And it doesn't in the early days. And that gives us St. Augustine. St. Augustine around 400 A.D., so he's our first major Christian philosopher. Now, there are other Christian philosophers who come earlier, and there's like origin, but it's it's St. Augustine that is going to be the the bomb. Boom. Who who's he's the one we still teach in in ordinary college classes. You know, you might in your great book series, you might read a piece of confessions and or City of God. Why is St. Augustine important? Well, he combines Christianity with Plato and Aristotle. He bridges the gap. Oh, you all believe in Plato and Aristotle? That's great. Christianity doesn't challenge that. Christianity works with that. So St. Augustine is famous for two books. The first is Confessions, which is where he does the idea that anyone, 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 anyone can become a Christian. It's the idea that you can start over. But it also says, I was a sinner, but I can become better. I can change. I can say, I can look at myself and say, what do I do wrong? And then change those things. This is, this is the foundation. Confessions is the foundation of every anonymous program. Alcoholics Anonymous, right? First is, I don't have control. And second is I give over control to a higher being. Well, for St. Augustine, that's the Christian God. That's Jehovah. J-E-H-O-V-A-H. Jehovah. Which is the Latin way of saying Yahweh. So it's the idea that you could start over. And now here is where the philosophy comes in. In monotheism, as we talked about, monotheism has a problem. Because you have to explain why do bad things happen to good people? If God is all-powerful and God is awesome and God loves you, why did your child get leukemia at the age of three? Not why did you have a car accident or why did someone be mean to you? Like, Even though God could prevent those things, there's the idea of free will. But what about those things that are outside of free will? that are still evil that happen to good people. And I can't think of anything more evil than childhood cancer. Anything. That is, that is not perpetuated by an evil person. Why should childhood cancer exist? That you cannot, you can, you can tell me all the science you want, and I will tell you, but I believe in a loving God who controls all things. And so childhood cancer should not exist. But it does. And so we have, so monotheism has to deal with that. And that's the book of Job that kind of we discussed in, in the Hebrew section. Um, 
that's if you've ever you I mean if you've ever been to a funeral of a young person someone is always going to say it's part of God's plan God called them home we don't understand the plan because we are human we are mortal but it's part of the plan and you have to be satisfied with that as a Christian you have to be satisfied with it there's not much more to it in the Jewish tradition from Job it's a test of faith in Islam it's this combination a test of faith in the God's plan. Um, what Augustine does in Confessions is turn it on its head and go, why do good people do bad things? Like, he's got the answer for why bad things happen to good people, right? It's part of God's plan. But now he's got to reverse that. Why do good people? You're a good person. Why are you, why are you cheating on your wife? Why are you beating your kids? Why are you doing bad things? Why do you cheat on your taxes? Why? Why do good people do bad things? And his answer is actually very Freudian. It's funny that 2,000 years later we get Freud, who will kind of explain the pleasure principle, and it's the idea that it feels good. He says it in Confessions. I liked the way I was acting. It wasn't satisfying, but it felt good at the time. I had a mistress, and I liked it. I stole some peaches and I liked it. You know, it felt good to get away with this stuff. Sin feels good. And it's very Freudian because you, you anything, you ask, why would you do something? And Freud will tell you, well, it must feel good. If it didn't feel good, you wouldn't do it. Augustine will tell you that sin is temporary. The good, the good feeling of sin is temporary. You smoke drugs, eventually the drugs wear off. You get drunk, you get a hangover, right? The sex ends, right? The affair ends. The idea is, is, is that since they are mortal things, you run out of them. And so you need more and you need more. Very, very much an anonymous program, right? Whether it's... Um, Alcoholics Anonymous, Sexual Addicts Anonymous, or Narcotics Anonymous. It's all the same, right? I had to do more to get the same high, to get the same feeling. What Augustine says is, you don't need that because you can have God. God, only God can satisfy your soul. Sin can't do it. Sin can make you feel good for a little bit, but then you wake up the next morning and you feel shitty. You feel terrible. Your lover is gone. The drugs are done. The sun is bright. Your head hurts. God can satisfy your soul. God can fill you up. Why? Because God is infinite. God, unlike the drugs, has no beginning and no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is older than time and will be older than time. And so if you, you could always start over, again, confessions is you can confess and be born again. You could say, I'm sorry, and start over. Just don't do it again. And so this is a book for people. It's personal behavior philosophy. And it's, and it's a confession. It says, I did bad things. You do bad things. We're in this together. 
But look at me now. Then there's City of God. City of God is written as the Roman Empire is collapsing. And people come to him and go, St. Augustine, 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 the the Vandals are in North Africa. The Visigoths have sacked Rome. What do we do? What do we do? Do we fight for Rome? What, what, I don't know. What do we do? And he says, don't worry about it. Heaven is the goal. Jesus is very clear on this. If this is the end of the world, and it certainly looked like the end of the world, don't worry about it. Heaven is your goal. Just be a good person. And the people said, look, Augustine, I have read my Gospels. I have read my letters. It's 400. I got the new book called the Bible. I've read it. It doesn't have anything about heaven in it. It says heaven exists. It says heaven's great. But what is it like? It says I'm going to have, it's going to be fun. Is it just me hanging out with Jesus all day in a chair? Like staring at each other? I'm sure that's great. But there's no description. What is it like? And he goes, well, have you read your Plato? And they go, of course. Augustine, we're Romans. Of course we've read our Plato. I went to school. I took Plato 101, Plato 102, and Plato 202. I, I've taken the classes. I know what Plato says. He says, out there, somewhere where you cannot go, there's a place where everything is perfect that you, you cannot taste, touch, or, 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 or examine. But everything there is perfect. And it exists forever. And Augustine looks at them and goes, that's heaven. That's heaven. And like, how do you know? It's like, because Plato told us. Because Jesus told us. What is heaven? Heaven is a perfect Rome run by a perfect emperor. How do you know? Because Plato tells you that everything exists on earth must exist in a perfect form in the ether. Well, Plato wasn't a Christian. Plato lives 400 years before Jesus. If he had been a Christian, he would have called it heaven. And he would have said, of course, Rome exists, which means there must be a perfect Rome somewhere. There must be the idealized Rome without the homeless, without the sex workers, without the poor people, where everybody in it is rich. Not that there's no poor people. It's that everybody, there is no money. It's very communist in heaven. It's funny how people hate communism, but like heaven is the most communistic place ever because you get everything you need and you don't have to work for it. There's no money in heaven. There's no exchange in heaven. If you watch The Good Place, right? There's no capitalism in heaven. Which in The Good Place, it takes the idea that that gets boring. That too much goodness is boring, which is funny because it's also the matrix. It's the idea of the matrix. That humans need suffering. But that's a whole different philosophical concept. What Augustine is talking about is that heaven is a perfect Rome. Now, why would it be a perfect Rome? Because they lived in the Roman Empire. They believed in Rome. So, of course, heaven would be Rome. Heaven is not going to be a suburban town in California. Right? There is no California. There are no suburbs. And who is God? God is the perfect emperor. Because what is an emperor? An emperor is in charge of all things. But most of our emperors suck. And so Augustine's like, you got a perfect emperor. 
That's God. And so this is also one of the things that is like the beginning of where God is perfect in all things. That's not very clear in the Old Testament, in the, in the, in the Jewish books. God makes mistakes. God apologizes. God does mean things. And he can say, oh, you deserved it. But he also says, ah, I'm never going to do that again, which tells you it was a mistake. He shouldn't have done it. He feels bad about it. But by 400, we're getting this platonic God, this God that makes no mistakes, that is perfect in every way. You know, you only have to look at Job, at the book of Job, to know that in the Old Testament, that was not the feeling. You had to work your way up through the books to get there. Job is not a perfect God. The Job's God is not a perfect God. That, does, that doesn't mean that God is not God. It just means... And I, I like this idea, is, and it might be a minority idea, but it's, it's if you read these books, you, that Yahweh changes. He changes. In some ways, he becomes more human. Or, or the humans, his relationship to humans change him, which I think is inspiring, rather than this, this, this granite, unchanging, inflappable, perfect God that you can't relate to. You get, like, I like that Jesus is a man. So, I I subscribe to the philosophy, and I know it's a minority philosophy, but I subscribe to the philosophy that Jesus was married. And I'm fine with it being Mary Magdalene. And the reason why, and I'll just go, I know I'm doing City of God, but the reason why is very simple. The four Gospels do not agree on much. They don't. They disagree on a lot of things. But what do they agree on? That at the crucifixion, Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene are there. There are other people there, but in every one of the four Gospels, those two women are there. And the first person Jesus comes to when he's resurrected is Mary Magdalene. In all four of them. He doesn't go to his homeboys. He doesn't go to Peter. He doesn't go and find Judas. No. He goes to Mary Magdalene. Why is that evidence for me? It's because I'm a married man. And I know if I was the first person to, to break death and come back to live again, and I went to my homeboys... My wife would be furious with me. Notice she's the one tending the garden. She's the one at the, at the gravesite. Why? I'm not saying his homeboys didn't love him, but she obviously had a deeper connection to Jesus than just some rich woman who followed him around. And I like that about my Jesus because it makes him more human, it makes him more approachable, makes him more understandable. Because I can't be the Jesus of in my life of the crucifixion. Few people are that brave. That's the last book of the last temptation of Christ. The idea that Jesus could come off that that cross. He doesn't have to be crucified. What if Jesus isn't crucified? Because he doesn't have to be. He's Jesus. He could do anything. 
but he has to be crucified for Christianity, for the resurrection to happen, for the resurrection to be meaningful. And so I'm okay with it. That's, that's me. You don't have to be, but I'm okay with that. But Augustine is turning heaven into a city run by a perfect emperor, a perfect God. And heaven is more important than all the earthly stuff. So should you fight to save Rome? Eh, if you want to, but you don't have to. Because your job is to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Shakespeare says, and live the best life you can. If that, if for you that means saving Rome, go for it. If it doesn't, then don't. You don't have to. You have to get yourself into, into heaven. And so you have to do what's right for you in how you understand Jesus and the Gospels. So we have to backtrack a little bit to the 300s to go, well, how did Christianity win? And that's the Emperor Constantine. Now there's estimates, maybe the, the Roman world was about 10% Christian by the time Constantine comes along. But it is it clearly changes like a hockey stick and on a graph after Constantine. So who's Constantine? Constantine is a Roman soldier who wins a civil war. He is the last unified emperor of the Roman Empire. After him, he's going to divide the Roman Empire between two of his sons. And it's never really going to be put back together, those two halves. There's going to be an east, and that east is going to be based in a city that we're going to talk about, and then it's going to be the west in Rome. And that west is looking at Germany, going, there's problems up there, while the east is looking at Persia, going, there's problems out there. So the Roman Empire is kind of being split in two directions because it's got problems. At the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, the battle that's going to win Constantine his civil war and make him emperor of a unified Rome, Jesus comes to him in a dream and says, fight for me. And so what he does is he has his soldiers put the chi in the row, the P and the X on their shields. Cairo is, a G, you know, Jesus Christ. They win. They win the battle. And thus proving that this J Jewish prophet, Christian God thing, which Constantine doesn't really understand at the beginning, whatever it is, it's powerful. Jesus is powerful, and so you can't disrespect Jesus anymore. So probably feeding his followers to the lions is probably bad. So in 313, he publishes the Edict of Milan, which legalizes Christianity as one religion among many. It doesn't make it the official religion. It doesn't mean, it doesn't even make him a Christian. It just legalizes Christianity. It says no more persecutions of Christians. They're, they're an accepted religion, along with Judaism, along with Zeus, and along with Jupiter. and So, boom, it's now legal. So now you could do it in public. You could open up churches. And then the big thing happens. Constantine doesn't like Rome. And he's got problems with the Persians in the east. So what does he do? He builds a new capital, Constantinople, the new Rome. This is why in the, in the um, it's called the new Rome at the time. And that's why um, the Quran 
references room. Or the Turks will talk about room, R-U-M. They're not referencing Italian Rome. They're referencing Constantinople when they talk about we must take Rome. We must capture the, the, the city of Rome. That's Constantinople to them. You know, 1,500 miles to the west is another Rome they know nothing about, care less about. To them, Rome is Constantinople. It was called the New Rome. It's the second capital. It's in the east. It's where Europe and Asia meet. It's today Istanbul. And it's going to be a Christian capital, which means they're going to pour money. Constantine is going to pour money into building churches, building libraries, building um, schools where people can learn to be priests, seminaries which means jobs, which means support. So if you're like a mason, well, now you could get a job building a church. But you know who's going to get those jobs first? People on their resume who have Christian on it. And so what do people do? They start to convert. They flock to Constantinople for the jobs. They they, They flock for the support, and then they start to convert. Because it helps them get the jobs. It helps them move up in the society. Constantine needs a whole new level of support. He needs he needs generals. He needs officers. He needs people he can trust. And who can he trust? He could trust Christians. Why? Because they were an oppressed people who he has now liberated. Think about how important Lincoln was in the African-American tradition in the 1870s, in the 80s, and the 1890s. Think about that. He got compared to, like, Moses at the time for the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, that's Constantine. Constantine has taken this oppressed people and has allowed them to live their lives out in society. They no longer have to be hidden in the shadows. And so he knows that he has their support. The problem is, what are their beliefs? Now you got all these people coming in and they're like, okay, who's Jesus? And they're like, well, Jesus is this prophet. And like, okay, and he's the son of God. And like, oh, oh well, that's, we could deal with that. Zeus has plenty of sons. I'm cool with that. Um, so he's just like this, uh, like Achilles. And like, no, 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 no. He's, he's actually God. And like, wait a minute, how does that work? And it's like, and he's born to a virgin. He's like, that's some Persian craziness. That's some Zoroastrian Persian stuff. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's true. The Zoroaster was also a virgin birth. And, you know, don't get us started on other stuff from the East, too. <coughs> it's all in here. And so what you get is all these fights that Constantine does not want to deal with. Constantine has to go fight the Persians. He does not want to. And so the biggest question is how human is Jesus? People know their Greek math, they know their percentages, they know that Jesus is God and man, because he died. Remember, Jesus died. That's a problem. Gods don't die. So Jesus can't be 100% God. So he's got to be a little bit of man. So how much of each? Is he 90% God, 10% man? Is he 90% man, 10% God? Is he 50-50? Obviously, he's 50-50, right? He's got to be 50-50, right? He's born of a woman, but he's, but he's, you know, from the Holy Spirit. Like, like it's complicated. 
And remember, most of these people are not educated at all in any of this stuff. They don't understand the Greek philosophy. They don't understand Zoroastrianism at all. They don't know, but it doesn't make sense to them. It's complicated. And so what Constantine does is says, either you guys figure out what you believe or I will tell you what you believe. So all the major thinkers got together and in Nicaea, in the city of Nicaea, a suburb of Constantinople, and they hashed it out. And they created the Nicene Creed, which was a profession of beliefs. It is said, and as a Catholic, I say this every time I go to church, is we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, blah, 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 blah. It is, it is a profession of this is what we believe. Everything else around it, we can do the hokey pokey with. We can, you know, see what we like and what we don't like. But this stuff, Jesus is begotten, not made, Right? And it means also, if you don't believe that stuff that's in there, it's a heresy. And heresy is a new crime, because heresy is a thought crime. You don't actually have to do anything to be a heretic. You just have to think differently. And for Constantine, who is not the nicest guy in the world, the idea was, if you did not believe these things, you were a traitor to him, to the Roman Empire. And so... By creating a standardization, for the first time we have a standardization, and it's not a surprise, the Nicene Creed comes out around the time the Bible is being put together, around 300, where the final kind of edits are being made to, to kind of create a standardization of beliefs. It also invents what we definitely don't believe, and there are punishments for not believing it. So... What happens to the Roman Empire? What happens to Christianity? Well, by the 300, by 300, the New Testament has been put together and it's created official books, which separates them from the Gnostic Gospels, for example, the heretical or the problematic. You know, the ones that seem pretty good, but they don't know what to do with. So they create, these are the ones we agree are good. Now, they're problematical, right? The Revelation of John is obviously not written by the John of the Gospel. Obviously not. The, 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 the writing style is so completely different that there is no way you could go, oh, they're the same. No, there's none. There are letters of Paul that are clearly not written by Paul because they are written differently than other letters by Paul that are considered to be more Paul Pauline, as it's said. So there are problems in the New Testament as well. Remember, it comes out of an oral tradition. Um, but the idea is that we're putting together these official books. By 400, the collapse of the Roman defenses versus the Huns, the Goths, and Germanic invasions means that Roman gods were humiliated. Remember, rule one of, God, of a god is to protect their worshipers. And the invasions, um, the destruction of the Roman army, the murder of the murder, the defeat in battle and killing of a Roman emperor in battle in the east meant they had nothing to offer. Roman gods had nothing to offer for the end of the world. They don't. They don't, they don't have anything. So Christianity has heaven. And so in 380 AD, Theodosius makes Christianity the official religion trying to get Christians into public service, into the military, and unify the empire under the stress. See, by saying 
everyone's now a Christian. You all have to believe Christianity. The idea was we're going to smooth over all of these cultural differences. We're all going to believe the same things. We're all going to be the same Roman. To be a Roman is to be a Christian. So we all believe the same things so we can be unified again and then fight the, the Germans, the Goths, and the Huns. It doesn't really work. And part of it is, is that the Goths, the Germans, and the Huns continue to win. The Huns will eventually lose at the Battle of Chalon, in which a Roman army allied with the Frankish army will defeat it and push it out of Europe, defeating Attila the Hun. But that leaves the Goths and the Germans all over the place. By 500 AD, the Western Roman Empire is gone. The polytheistic part, and it was still mostly polytheistic in the West. The Roman emperor was deposed in 476. The national government hierarchy was destroyed. The army was defeated. Long-distance trade had ended. Cities were becoming depopulated as people needed food, so they left the cities. The Christian church was the only national structure left standing that connected people to news, to the government, or across distances. It's the only institution left that connected quote-unquote kings because how kingly are some of these chieftains, these, these barbarian lords, but they're the only institution that connected kings to taxpayers. So what happens is success because the kings start converting. Why? Because they convert from polytheism in order to get access to the network of the Christian church which will, in the West, become slowly the Catholic Church. In the East, it becomes the Orthodox Church. But it's a way for these kings to, to connect to their taxpayers, to get them news, to get news from them, to have someone educated run their kingdom, collect their taxes, tell the people what the rules are, what the laws are, hire mercenaries for the army. The Christian Church was the only institution that was that middleman between government and the people, between the king and the people. And so over the next couple hundred years, Western Europe leaves its polytheism behind, leaves its Germanic gods behind, which is weird because the Germanic gods won, and yet they'll in the end lose. And everyone will eventually do what Theodosius proposed, which Theodosius tried to do, which everyone in the West will become Christian. And until 1500, 1517 with Martin Luther, west of, you know, the Danube, west of the Alps, it's going to become Catholic. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed. This was a big episode. We did a lot. Um, and so I hope you're doing well. This was fun to do. This is this is brand new. This was this was way bigger and more involved, more politics, more religion, more modern stuff than any of my versions of this lecture before. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Be safe. Take care.